G'day, everyone. Hello. I'll pray before we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful moment that we call the Transfiguration. And we pray as we look at it together now that we will be convicted again of just how wonderful and just how glorious our Lord Jesus actually is. And more than that, we pray that we will hear the call to listen to him. So help us now to set aside the things that might distract us and instead help us to truly listen to Jesus as he speaks to us. In his name we pray. Amen. As a uh, kid when I was growing up on Saturday afternoon, if you had nothing better to do, you, uh, you watch TV. It's much the same today, except you have a lot more options today. Uh, when I was growing up in Canberra, there were two television channels, Channel 3 and Channel 7. Uh, when we, there was no digital or anything like that. And when we moved to Brisbane, there were four channels. They didn't have SBS then or any of that. But the TV show you watched on a Saturday afternoon was Nine's Wide World of Sports. And it was five hours on a Saturday afternoon and five hours on a Sunday afternoon of back-to-back sports highlights. So that's what my brother and I had nothing better to do. That's what we watched. And we would hang out in particular for this one segment called Survival of the Fittest. And uh, I tried to find it online so I could show you video footage of this from the 80s, but it wasn't available. Uh, And basically it was a competition where these people would do effectively just insane competitions to beat one another. Uh, So the one I remember most is they would run down what I assume you would call the steepest slope you can find before you have to call it a cliff. So they would run down the steepest slope, like, you know, 300 metres down with no safety equipment, no ropes. I think they had like an old stack hat. Do you remember those uh, uh, bike helmets? That's about all they had. And then they would go to the bottom and go straight into the rapids in the river at the bottom and have to swim down the rapids without a kayak or without a raft or anything like that. And then once they've survived that, they'd have to climb out with a rope again with no harness or anything like that. It was pretty amazing stuff. Uh, And we'd watch it. And then what my brother and I would do is we would go out and try and reenact it in the backyard. And so uh, it's amazing we survived. But the big question you watched as you, you asked as you watched this was... Why? Why are they doing this? Because it wasn't like there was a big cash prize or anything. This wasn't the era of million dollar check prize. You know, I think they got, you know, a $500 voucher to the local hardware store or something if they won. And they were just normal people. So they'd interview them. It'd be Bob, the school teacher from Wisconsin, or, you know, Aaron, the outdoor instructor from Colorado. And and so you just ask, why are you doing this? Why, I, I think this whenever I watch anyone run a marathon. I just sort of think, why are you doing this? Why, why are you putting yourself through it? And for these guys, why risk terrible injuries? Especially because, to be frank, the only reason my brother and I were watching it was to see them get injured. That was, that was the attraction. Hey, he's fallen over. Oh, look at that. Is that a broken leg? You know, or that sort of idea. That's the type of people we were. But you can only assume, though, they did it because for them, the glory of winning, the glory of being crowned the winner made it worth doing or perhaps even just the satisfaction of finishing just made it worthwhile for them the chance of glory was worth the cost and so come with me now to Matthew 17 because that's what this passage is all about it's about the glory that makes any cost worthwhile Uh, and in this moment what we call it is the transfiguration as you'll see there but actually to understand the significance of this you need to flick back to Matthew 16 that we looked at last week with Troy so flick back over in your Bibles to Matthew 16 and just remind yourself what happened there so if you remember from last week Peter finally recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah that he is God's son the promised king the one promised by the Old Testament just when he's getting excited though that he thinks this is the glorious king 
Jesus explains that he's expected he's a different sort of king to, to the one that Peter is expecting. He explains, actually, I haven't come to be crowned, I've come to suffer. I've come to die. I need to suffer and die to pay the price for the sin of humanity before I rise again and then I'll come in glory. But then Jesus goes even further because he says, and it's not just me who will face the suffering. So if you remember last week's passage, as Troy shared it with us, uh, in one sense, Jesus is a terrible salesman. He, he says, come and follow me. There's going to be massive costs if you do. It's not the way to sell a new religion, to sell a new faith or something like that. He does not paint a rosy picture. He doesn't try and con people into following him by saying, hey, it's, it, it's, it's different to what you'll see. He says, no, there are massive costs in following me. The Christian life is not easy. Look at what he says in verse 24 of chapter 16. He says, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To, to take up your cross has become like a, a saying in our sort of culture and it just means to bear a little burden you know it's my cost to bear that my car broke down on the my cross to bear that my car broke down the way to work or something like that Jesus was not talking about a little burden he was saying you've got to be willing to give up your life when you took up your cross in that world you were carrying it to your execution point to take up your cross means I'm willing to die now on the one hand He's speaking metaphorically. To become a Christian is to die and become a new person. See, it's to hand over control of your life to Jesus. Say, I'm not the boss anymore. I now let Jesus be the boss of my life. I live for Jesus' glory, not mine. I let Jesus decide what's right and wrong, not me. But for many Christians, this has been more than a metaphorical calling. Still in the world today, many Christians die for following Jesus. And for Peter, who was listening to this, in the end, he was crucified, just like his Lord. And so the question to then ask is, of course, why? It's the same question, why? Why would you follow Jesus if it means losing your life? Why would you sign up for this? Well, Jesus started to give us the answer last week. It's because whatever we might lose in this short life, whatever the costs, we gain so much more for eternity. Whatever costs there are in this short 70 or 80 years or whatever God gives us, they are not worth comparing to the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then on the other side, whatever you think you might gain in this life, it all comes to nothing in the end anyway, if you do not have Jesus. Verse 26 is the key. It's such an important verse. Look there. It says, what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? So he's saying, you can have a nice house, you can have a nice family, you can be universally loved, you can be universally respected, or for that matter, you can have three houses, you can have a private jet, you can own an island, you can do whatever it is. You can have everything this world offers you for 70 years, but then you die. You can have all the glory this world has to offer, it will be worth nothing if, when Christ returns, he says, I never knew you. It'll be worth nothing if... When Christ returns, he says, your sin has not been forgiven because you never followed me. You never trusted in me. Take up your cross, Jesus says, if you want to follow me. Lose your life if you want to live. That's the message Peter and the other disciples have just heard as we come to chapter 17 now. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's had these words ringing in his ears, it says, for six days at this point. 
And he and the other disciples would have been asking, is this worth it? That's not what we signed up for when Jesus came and said, come and follow me and we dropped our nets. So we just go back to being fishermen again. I mean, Jesus doesn't seem to look that glorious. Is he actually worth giving up my life for? Then Jesus gives Peter this experience. This experience which says, Peter, this is who I am. This is who you're following and you would be a fool if you did not give up everything to follow me. And that experience was this. It's what we call the transfiguration. So now finally, come to chapter 17, verse 1. You see there it's six days later. Jesus takes his three closest disciples. So there were the 12 disciples. Well, there's a lot more than that. Then there were the 12 special disciples, if you like. And then there were the three closest friends of Jesus. That's who this is. Peter, James and John. And he takes them up on a high mountain. Now already, if you know your Old Testament, you're thinking something special is going to happen. When people go up on mountains with God, something happens, like Moses on Mount Sinai or or, or Elijah on Mount Horeb, and something special does happen. Look at verse 2. It says, He, Jesus, was transformed in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. If I spend, with my complexion, if I spend too long in the sun, my face shines like the sun. It's bright as anything. In the Old Testament, when, when Moses came into the presence of God on the mountain, his face shone for days. He had to put a a veil over it. We read about it in our gospel team on Wednesday night. He had to put a veil over it because of the pure light of God that had reflected on his face. This is more than that. Because here, Jesus is not reflecting the light that's come from God. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the source of the light here. This is a glimpse for these disciples of the true glory of Jesus. This is the glory that God the Son gave up to become a human being for our sake. It's what Philippians 2 talks about, where Philippians 2 says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. This is a glimpse of what Jesus humbled himself from. And it's a glimpse of the glory Jesus will have again when he is risen and when he ascends to his Father's right hand and that we will see again when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. See, this is who you give up your life for, the one who shines with all the brightness of God. There's even more than that going on, come with me, because Jesus is not alone. Look at verse 3, it says, Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, why Moses and why Elijah at this point? Well, they are perhaps the two greatest people who have lived before Jesus. So you're talking about two very, very important people at this point. They are the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. They are two of very, very few people who actually experienced meeting God. So you can read about Moses in Exodus 31, you can read about Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and Moses was the one who God gave his law to the world through. So that's a pretty important person. And then Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. And so what they are is the two most important people from the two different eras of God's revelation to humanity, the law and the prophets. You do not get any bigger than Moses and Elijah. But more than that, the Old Testament tied the coming of God's salvation with a reappearance of someone like Moses and someone like Elijah. 
So in Deuteronomy 18, you can read these passages later, in Deuteronomy 18, God said a new prophet will come, a new Moses who would speak God's own words. And in Malachi 4, the promise was that a new Elijah would come and he would prepare the way for the Lord. So you see, this is massive. Here is Jesus shining with the glory of God with perhaps the two greatest men of history appearing alongside him. And Peter doesn't know what to do. Look at verse 4. It says, Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what's he talking about? Uh, Why is he offering to build three tents at this point, one for each of them? Don't put too much thought into it, because in Mark's gospel, he tells us Peter was terrified and did not know what to say. I wonder if if you've been in that situation where you meet one of your heroes and you've got all these questions you thought you were going to ask them, but the words won't come out when you come and you end up saying something silly and walking away going, what was that? Why did I do that? So embarrassing. In those romantic comedies where the guy finally meets the girl of his dreams, but he can't get the words out to tell her how he feels and, and he walks away thinking, I've blown it. That is Peter here. But I think it's also, it's Peter's attempt. What he's trying to do, I think, is just make this last a little bit longer. Peter's sort of thinking, am I in heaven or something? You know, this is amazing. If I just make you all a tent, if I just make you all a shelter, you'll all hang around. Moses and Elijah might stay. I might be able to sit at their feet. And Jesus, in all your glory, you might stay. But Peter is actually doing something unhelpful here. He's treating them like three equals. I'll build a tent for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, as if Jesus is on a par with Moses and Elijah. And he's treating them as if he still needs Moses, as if he needs Moses and Elijah to hang around and share their message with with him. And so as Peter is babbling on, God the Father himself interrupts him. If you've ever had a bad week, just think of this week for Peter. Last week, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, and rebuked him. This week, God the Father interrupts him. That's Peter's week. And so look at verse 5. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. If you remember, you'd have to flick back a few chapters. If you remember, that's the same words that God the Father said when Jesus was baptised. So it's the same thing he said then. And what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 2 with the first sentence, which is all about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Saviour King. And then the second sentence is quoting Isaiah 42, which was our Old Testament reading from a minute ago, which is all about the coming of the suffering servant, the one who will pay the price for the sins of God's people, to save God's people. So what God the Father is doing at this point is he's actually reinforcing what Jesus said about himself back in chapter 16. He's saying, yes, this one is my son. This one is the king, but he is the king who is willing to die to pay the price for your sin. But here God says one last thing that he didn't say back at the baptism. It's the last thing he says. He says, listen to him. And I think that's for Peter's benefit and it's for our benefit. Moses and Elijah were so important but they were just prophets. Their time is gone. Now I'm giving you the final word. Here is my son. This is the one you need to listen to, God is saying. 
This is the one you need to listen to once and for all. Don't try to keep Moses and Elijah here. This is the one you need to listen to. It's like Hebrews chapter 1, which says, and it's up on the screen, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's final and complete revelation. Listen to him. But by this time, Peter, James and John, they're not thinking about listening. They're doing what every person in history who's come into the presence of God has done. They're lying on the ground, terrified. And so Jesus gently tells them, get up and don't be afraid. And when they open their eyes, it's all over. Moses and Elijah have left. Jesus is not glowing anymore. It's over. Now, before we think about what this event means for us, there are just two final things in this passage to deal with. And there are two things that come up as they're walking down the mountain. I'm assuming it's a more leisurely walk than the ones I used to watch on TV. Uh, The first thing is, Jesus swears them to silence. Do you see that? Why does he do that? Look at verse 9. It says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, I reckon after seeing all of this, Peter and James and John are thinking, I just have to tell someone what I've seen, at least the other nine from the 12, but Jesus says, no, stay silent. Why? Why stay silent? Well, two reasons, I think. The first is, if people heard about this, it would have been impossible to stop them trying to make Jesus the king and take him and put him on the throne now. It would have been impossible to stop people glorifying Jesus now. But Jesus knew he had come to suffer and die first. It wasn't time for people to understand his glory yet. Before that, he needed to be rejected to pay the price for our sin. And then secondly, I think it's because after his resurrection, this is not actually going to be that relevant. You see, this was just a little taste. Once Jesus is risen, everyone can know. This is possibly the second most amazing moment in all of history. And yet we never talk about it, do we? Why? Because less than a year later, the most important moment of history happened, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And so after Jesus has risen from the dead, you're not going to be telling him about what you saw on this mountain. You're going to be telling them about the glory of the risen Jesus. When I'm risen, Jesus is saying, that's when you tell people about me. And it's interesting, isn't it? After his resurrection, Jesus doesn't say, stay silent. What does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations, telling them everything I've taught you. And that's why we do not keep that news to ourselves, the news of the risen Lord Jesus. Second thing that comes up as they're walking down is the question of Elijah. Come with me again. I won't spend long on this because it's sort of academic interest, but look at verse 10. It says, so the disciples questioned him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, I think at this point they're confused. They're sort of thinking the Old Testament said Elijah would come before the Messiah to to prepare the way for the Lord but Jesus has been around a while and we've just seen Elijah up on the mountain what's going on how does this all work now we already know this because we've seen it earlier in Matthew's gospel but I remind you this vision that they just saw wasn't the coming of the new Elijah John the Baptist was the new Elijah he came calling people to repent of their sin get ready for Jesus the one I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of you want to follow him that was John the Baptist he was the new Elijah Jesus here explains that to the disciples look at verse 12 
It says, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. Now the key point there is though, what they did to John the Baptist is exactly what they've done to every prophet throughout history and then what they did to Jesus and then what they still do to people who proclaim the gospel. They treated him in that same way, they cut off his head, they killed him. And this is the constant theme Jesus is saying This is not the time for glory for God's people. This is the time for suffering. The glory will come later. What's good enough for the prophets, what's good enough for John the Baptist was good enough for Jesus. But now let's come back to the transfiguration. And as I close, I want to draw out two key conclusions for us. So come with me now. Two key conclusions. The first is the glory of Christ makes any suffering bearable. The glory of Christ makes any suffering worth it. So remember, Jesus is giving this vision, this experience to Peter and James and John just after he's told them that they would need to give up their life to follow him. See, there are costs in following Jesus. But whatever the cost, even if it's death, it's worth it when you understand how glorious Jesus is. And more than that, it's worth it when you understand just how glorious it will be when he returns and takes us to share in his glory. See, this is who you are taking up your cross and following, the glorious Son of God, not just a wise prophet, God the Son in all his glory. One of the promises of Scripture is that you will face suffering in this life. We were talking about this in our gospel team on on Wednesday night. I don't know if you were in yours, but we were talking about how there's three different types of suffering you face. There's the suffering that's your fault. There's the suffering that's because of our sin. That's when I suffer because I've done the wrong thing. There's that suffering. But then there is a lot of suffering that is just because this world is fallen and broken. And it's got nothing to do with our sin. It's just because our world is broken, our world is fallen. And then there's a third type of suffering, which is suffering that happens because we follow Jesus, what the Bible calls persecution. And all three of those sufferings, and God promises we will face them, some worse than others, but that suffering can rock your faith, can make you say, why am I following Jesus? Is, Is this worth it? Is he actually worth this? It rocks your faith if you do not remember just how glorious the one you are suffering for is. Look at what the Apostle Paul said about in Romans chapter 8. And the Apostle Paul knew something about suffering for Jesus. He had stones thrown at him. He was left for dead. He was thrown to lions. He was kicked out of cities and towns. Romans 8, 18 will come up on the screen. The Apostle Paul says though, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. He's talking about the glory when Christ returns. He's not downplaying suffering, by the way. He's not saying, ah, oh, you can cope. He's talking about terrible suffering. He's not downplaying it. He just says, you have to realize how wonderful the glory of Jesus will be when he returns. Yes, there are costs in following Jesus. But it's like he says, who cares when you know the glory that awaits us when Christ returns? Secondly and finally, the main point of this passage is those final three words God said to Peter in verse 5. Look again at verse 5. 
He starts off, this is my beloved son. And he finishes, listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a wise man. Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is God's complete and final word to humanity. And so God says to you and he says to me, listen to him. I hope you hear the power of that. See, I want to invite us collectively tonight to do some repenting. To do some repenting of what I call half-hearted listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus a bit, but actually listening to a lot of other things a lot louder, if I can put it that way. See, it's not keep an ear out for Jesus. Sometimes a father says to his children, listen to your mother. Has your father ever said that to you? And he doesn't mean hear the words, she says. What does he mean? He means do it. Take the words to heart. Live by it. Act on it. That is what God is saying to you and I here. Listen to my son. Not in that half-hearted way you all too often listen to things and I all too often listen to things. Listen to him. Take it in. Live by it. Make his word your daily bread. Feed deeply on it. Grapple with it. Devour it. And then live by it. Change your mind all the time to fit in with Jesus, to come into line with Jesus, rather than changing Jesus to fit in with what you think. See, we have all of these voices speaking to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, shaping our view of things. But the dominant voice has to be Jesus' voice, and it will only be the dominant voice if you actually commit to reading it daily, to reading it with others every week. I want to challenge many of us today to repent of the half-hearted way that we listen to Jesus, of the way we leave our Bible closed on the back seat of the car and then pull it out on Wednesday night at gospel team or on Sunday night at church, the way we leave it next to our bed unopened. I want to challenge us to commit ourselves to truly listening to our glorious Lord Jesus. I pray you might do that with me tonight. Come with me to verse 2 again. It says, he was transformed in front of them and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. That is the Lord you follow. And then verse 5, it says, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. That is the Lord we follow. Let's listen to him and let's take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Most of all, we thank you for the way he was willing to give up that glory and humble himself to become our Saviour. But Father, now we pray that the knowledge of his glory might make us willing to take up our cross daily and follow him, to pay whatever cost there is for the delight of calling him our Lord and living for him. And Father, help us to listen to him. Help us to repent of the way all too often we are half-hearted. And instead, help us to commit to reading his word daily, to grappling with it, to living by it and acting on it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.